This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning for our 83rd consecutive program during this pandemic. Um, This week was a big week for me in the sense that for the first time in two and a half years, I got on an airplane. As many of you know, a lot of what I do is involvement in sports, and the NFL draft was in Las Vegas, and at the same time we have a meeting of a group called the Mackey White Committee for Health and Safety, and we work for the National Football League Players Association. So the trip was interesting. In terms of mask wearing, I'd have to say about half the people wore masks on the plane um, and in the airport here at Bradley. Uh, When I got on the flight from Detroit to Las Vegas, I think I saw one other mask. Um, I think that basically people are kind of trying to get back to the new normal, and, and it's their choice, but... When we look at the numbers, the numbers tell us otherwise in terms of the positivity rate. So I found it very interesting. The meeting is one of the, it's a one-day meeting, basically. Uh, Got there Thursday, came back Friday. But it's so worthwhile because many of the things and the changes we've made in professional football have really worked their way down. And when you look at sports, just looking at football, it's really a pyramid. I mean, there are only 2,500 or so players in the National Football League. When you boil that down and you start looking at youth football, um, there are so many more players in high school and college. So a lot of the changes that have been made at that level since 2009 have been fairly dramatic. Don't forget, in 2009, people were still saying that concussion wasn't an important factor in the sport of football. Uh, and it's it's been dramatic in terms of how people had said, you're changing the sport, you're going to kill football. And it certainly hasn't. And if anything, it's made the sport of football better. It's certainly made it safer, and we have plenty of data to show that in terms of concussion and head injury, but it's also helped other sports. And I think it's so important to understand that. I mean, the sport of football has changed a lot. I mean, in 1980, here's one, 1980, the average weight of a lineman was 245 pounds. In 2019, the average weight of a lineman is 300 pounds. So you know that risk has changed as size and speed have changed as well. What I really feel good about is the changes we've been able to make at the lower level. This week I was listening to Brian Shackman, and he was having a conversation with Dennis House about 
their children playing flag football this weekend. I mean, we wouldn't have thought of that in the past, right? Flag football was not a big thing, and yet it's important. You know, a lot of people think that if my son starts getting pads and hitting at age six or seven, this is their way to get to the National Football League. And uh, I've said this before, when you look at those players, when you look at high-level athletes in the NFL, they didn't play youth football. They worked on skills. Archie Manning had Eli and Peyton throwing a football. He didn't have them getting hit. So flag football, if you really want to develop teamwork, let the kids have fun, they get to run, throw, catch, and do all the fundamentals, it's great to see. It's great to see that that has moved on. Also last week, I had an opportunity to spend some time at the Yard Goat Stadium, Dunkin' Donuts Park. Uh, the New York Yankees AA affiliate uh, was in town, and as many people know, I work for the New York Yankees. So I got to visit several times uh, on Saturday night, went and brought the whole family. First of all, I want to give a shout-out to Barry G. He was uh, so helpful uh, to uh, me and my family and getting things situated. But I, I want to let everybody know what a great venue it is, not just the physical venue. The people that work there are special. And I spend a lot of time in arenas and stadiums. But the concession people, the ushers, uh, the people who take your tickets, uh, it was a special experience for me and the entire family because people were so kind and always looking to help you get around an obstacle that occurs. And there are plenty of obstacles when you take a big family and grandchildren out. So um, if you've not been to Dunkin' Donuts Park to watch a game at the with the of the yard goats get there because it's one of the things that's really good about our community we got it right it took us a while to get it there to get it built but we got it right um COVID statistics our positivity here in connecticut continues to rise so i know everybody's saying we're back and this is over but it's 8.8 percent I mean, we were down to the 1% to 2% range. And nationally, the rate has, riven, has risen 44% among children. So as you're hearing about a potential new vaccine for children under the age of five, there is some urgency here in order to protect them. The U.S. death rate is now over 991,000 American lives that are lost. So we're still fighting this battle. And we still have to be mindful of what risk we're taking and when we're taking it. So I, I think everyone needs to be mindful of that if we're going to win out here. And you have to keep in mind, we have effective tools now when this first started we were helpless we now have a vaccine that we know is effective in keeping people alive and keeping them out of the hospital it is available it is free of charge and it is effective that's the key not only do we have a vaccine but 
if you get COVID, even though you've been vaccinated, but you're having symptoms, you can now get Paxlovid, which is an antiviral treatment that is extremely effective in curbing the symptoms to keep you again out of the hospital. That's the idea here. So when people say, well, I got the vaccine and then I got sick anyhow. Yeah, you did, but you probably didn't get as sick as you would. We know that for a fact because we know that many of the people dying here were people who are not vaccinated when you look at those numbers. This day in medicine, April 30th, 1934, Dr. William Henry Welch died. Dr. Welch was an American physician. He was a pathologist and a bacteriologist. And he was one of the founding professors for Johns Hopkins. And in 1916, he established the Johns Hopkins School of Hygiene and Public Health. Uh, One of the really outstanding podcasts I listen to is from Johns Hopkins. um, And it is uh, the Public Health podcast. If you look at Public Health Today. Uh, it is a wonderful podcast. Uh, Joshua Sharfstein is the host, and he has been a guest on our program. So it's interesting that really back in 1916, a public health tool was created in terms of a school just trying to deal with public health and keeping people safe and healthy. And we rely so heavily on that more than 100 years later. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to discuss a few other things that have come up in the literature. But I want to make special mention that today's guest in the second half of the program is going to be Dr. Ketan Bulsara. Dr. Bulsara is the professor. He's a professor, and he's the chief of the Division of Neurosurgery at the University of Connecticut. And this is a topic I wanted to get to, and that is brain tumors. There are very few diagnoses that brings such fear to our being as when someone tells you you have a brain tumor. So I really want to get updated about brain tumors, the differences between benign, malignant. How are we treating these? What what can people expect? And Dr. Bulsara is uh, an expert and uh, the local expert in doing that, not only from a surgical standpoint, but he leads a great team of people at the University of Connecticut who treat patients uh, by a variety of means. So we're going to learn a little bit more about that. So we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you for our second segment today. So this week um, we got some news um, that... The recommend that, now we had a 30-year recommendation that the use of low-dose aspirin, typically an 81-milligram aspirin, was instrumental in avoiding heart attack and stroke. And it's certainly something I adhere to. Um, I've been taking a baby aspirin daily um, for the last 32 years. And it's something, as physicians, we all knew that the antiplatelet effect of aspirin, right? What it does is it diminishes the stickiness of platelets to avoid clots. 
that can cause stroke and heart attack. So the so-called blood thinning effect of a baby aspirin was highly recommended uh, in some people who may have had a stroke or heart attack. They went to a full aspirin. So this week, to add more confusion to things, um, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force came out and said that for people over the age of 60, that if you do not have significant risk, this was not recommended. And in fact, the complication rate of excess bleeding was greater than, that rate was greater than the benefit for taking a baby aspirin every day. Now, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has come out with these things before. We've discussed them on the program. For example, um, they changed the requirement for women to have mammograms. They raised the age, uh, I forgot what they said, I thought they said age 50, to have regular mammograms without a history. And yet we have had experts on this program who have not adhered to that. And, and I think that, you know, they have a basis for doing that, just starting younger. We heard from them regarding colonoscopy, which is another hot topic. Again, saying you didn't need to have routine colonoscopy till a later age than was previously recommended. So they give you recommend recommendations are not guidelines. Okay, this is an opinion. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but it's very much an individual decision based on your history, based on your discussions with your physician. And I say this time and again, that people, that's why you have a doctor, someone you trust that you go to regularly, you ask them the question, should I still be doing this? And I think that's the important feature. We, I say this all the time, even with respect to COVID, right? Ask your doctor. I know they're going to tell you to get a vaccine, okay? I, I, because the, that is what the data show us. So in this case, um, before you stop taking the baby aspirin, and those of you who have not had bleeding problems or anything, talk to your doctor, and that's the best way uh, to go with and and. Uh, actually, I brought up the idea of colon cancer and colorectal. I'm hoping to get a guest on soon to talk about that because we're seeing rising rates of colorectal cancer in young people, so people under the age of 40, and we really want to get on top of that. Um, I, I read a, a letter to the editor in one of the papers, and I don't usually pay a lot of attention to it, but in this case, it, it was interesting because uh, the woman said, you know, patients need one electronic medical record. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think we need to look back a little bit at the history of our experience with electronic medical records. It really started in the 1990s when the Veterans Administration, of all people, I mean, let's face it, the Veterans Administration gets more grief than anybody, but they had really the first effective electronic medical record. It was available only for veterans, but it was great in the sense that you could be here in Connecticut being seen at the West Haven VA. And then if you spent your winters in Florida, 
you could go to a VA there, and they had immediate access to all your records, all your images. So the electronic medical record in and of itself is a great thing. It was mandated from the standpoint that Medicare wouldn't reimburse you less if you were a doctor and didn't have an electronic record. If you're still using a paper record, you would have to take a lower reimbursement. That started in, uh, I guess, around 2010 or so. So what's happened now, uh, the VA electronic record kind of never really evolved and never became commercially successful. So we have other companies. We have Epic now. We have Cerner. We have eClinical Works. There are several of these big players that have this. But it's not so much that you need one electronic record that goes across all providers. You need one electronic record that talks to all the others. And that's the thing, this crosstalk. So everybody, so commercially, when it comes to money, right, they have proprietary information that they don't want to share. But if we're going to do this the right way, we really need to have an electronic record where no matter which doctor you go to or which specialist, they can access the record. And I think we need to push for that as a nation. And it's important that we look at that because it really solves, it saves a lot of money in terms of redundancy in ordering a chest x-ray when somebody may have already had one and it's right there, you could look at it. Or labs, right? Redundancy in ordering labs. So it really is important to look at. Um, with that, we're going to get ready to take a uh, break now. And my guest is going to be Dr. Ketan Bulsara, who's going to join us in the second. This is a big topic when we get to talking about brain tumor uh, because there are some brain tumors um, that are so aggressive and yet others that we choose to follow along uh, and treat more conservatively. So it's important for us to really know the difference but it's one of those diagnoses that, that makes us all fearful. And, you know, what do we know about what causes brain tumors? We uh, recently been hearing about clusters uh, in various areas, uh, people who went to the same high school. So it, it's always in the news to some degree. And I really wanted to get on with uh, Dr. Bulsara. So we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with Dr. Ketan Bulsara who is a professor and chief of the Division of Neurosurgery at the University of Connecticut. If you wish to get questions to me and Dr. Bolsari, you could do that right now by going to info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest in this half hour of the program with Dr. Ketan Bulsara, who's a medical doctor. He is professor and chief of the Division of Neurosurgery at the University of Connecticut. His subspecialty in the field of neurosurgery is neurovascular and skull-based surgery. Um, and as we all know, when we think about surgery and especially brain surgery, um, 
it, it's something that we're all cautious about. It, it certainly gets all of our attention. And uh, having Dr. Bolsar here will be great because he is one of the best. Ketan, welcome to the show. Tony, thank you uh, so much for the opportunity to to be on your show and discuss this topic. And I I also wanted to congratulate you on uh, this tremendous show. That's a great resource for um, for patients and for healthcare providers. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, let's talk a little bit. Uh, you know, when people say the word brain tumor, I mean it's it's kind of a general term. Can you can you talk a little bit about what we mean when we say a brain tumor, what's, is it malignant? Is it benign? Just give some, uh, us a little bit of an overview. Got it. Well, well Tony, like you had mentioned, uh, when you hear the term brain tumor, um, sometimes it can be a very frightening, um, those can be very frightening words, primarily because brain tumors fundamentally attack the essence of who we are as, uh, as people. And uh, even though we've made great progress in uh, understanding them, um, uh, the status quo isn't good enough, and uh, there's still a lot that needs to be done. And, and we, we traditionally break up tumors into, into two categories, uh, malignant tumors and uh, benign tumors. And uh, malignant tumors are, are tumors um, that, uh, con- that grow uncontrollably and uh, at a rate that uh, we cannot uh, get a grasp of or stop in terms of their growth. Benign tumors in general are tumors that grow more slowly, and uh, they're tumors that um, uh, we may have uh, different sorts of options in terms of uh, uh, aggressively uh, uh, stopping uh, to to alter their their natural history. But, uh, you know, there's approximately 700,000 people in the United States living with uh, primary brain tumors, uh, 71% of them are benign and 29% are malignant. And, uh, um, you know, this year alone, about 90,000 patients will, will, um, will be diagnosed with a, a new primary brain tumor. But this doesn't even count for the patients who have metastatic brain tumor, in which there's about 200,000 patients uh, diagnosed annually. So, again, two big categories we divide them up into, uh, malignant and benign, and uh, mostly uh, referring to the growth rate of the tumors. Kenton, so people who are listening, what are some of the presenting symptoms um, when someone is early on and may have a brain tumor? How does somebody know that? Uh, what are they seeking help for? I think we all always think whenever we get a headache, okay, one of the first thoughts that comes to people's minds is do I have a brain tumor? But um, I think aside from that, what are the big things people need to be mindful of? Yeah, you know, one of the most frustrating aspects of uh, the initial presenting symptoms are they they mimic sort of uh, everyday symptoms that we oftentimes uh, disregard. So, for example, you mentioned uh, headaches, but I mean, some of the uh, some of the symptoms that uh, one does need to pay attention to are new new onset of headaches or or change in the pattern of headaches, uh, headaches becoming more severe. Uh, unexplained nausea, vomiting, uh, vision is- issues such as blurry vision, double vision, or loss of peripheral vision, uh, gradual loss or sudden loss of sensation in the arms or legs, balance difficulty, speech difficulty, fatigue, confusion, uh, difficulty making um, uh, decisions that were once uh, very simple, inability to follow commands and uh, seizures or hearing problems. And uh, as, you can, as you can see in that list that I just uh, mentioned, other than seizures, many of those symptoms are, 
or things that many of us may uh, may experience at some point in our life uh, transiently, but I think it's a persistence of these symptoms, worsening of these symptoms, uh, that should prompt uh, further attention. It's probably worth mentioning that it's also applicable if you observe that in a loved one or someone else, because sometimes we don't have enough insight, like uh, in terms of symptoms uh, that may be happening, not just forgetfulness, but, you know, you might notice your spouse using more uh, aspirin or ibuprofen for a headache or something of that nature. So uh, it's, it's really a team approach uh, yeah. from that standpoint. Um, so many of our patients are brought in by a loved one. Um, let's talk a little bit about how do you make the diagnosis? What, what are the key tests for you when you're working someone up for a brain tumor? Um, what do you do? The, yeah, the, the advantage we have now uh, in the United States is, uh, is we have uh, much more access to advanced imaging. And uh, usually the first... Um, the first study um, uh, by the, the time that I see these patients, uh, by, by the time I see patients, is uh, they've usually gotten a head CT, and uh, a head CT is a good screening exam uh, to uh, to identify any potential uh, pathology. And then uh, it's usually followed up with an MRI scan. An MRI scan uh, with and without contrast. Uh, if there's uh, if it's uh, very close to critical uh, blood vessels, and uh, then you may add an MRA, which will help you identify the relationship of the blood vessels to the tumor. And then, depending on the location of the tumor, uh, you may get uh, further advanced imaging, such as a functional MRI scan or tractotomy, uh, that allows us to even further define what critical neurovascular structures. Um, the, the tumors associated with uh, as we uh, plan treatment options. So uh, are all these tests readily available? I mean, when you talk about tractotomy, um, is that similar to, to diffusion tensor imaging um, when you're looking at this? I mean, uh, are they readily available tests? You know, these are, these are tests that are... Um, uh, those tests um, are usually available in, um, in in the established sort of multidisciplinary programs, and uh, I mean we're we're fortunate that we can uh, readily offer offer that test uh, through our Department of uh, Radiology. Obviously, getting that is available a, a, at, uh, at multiple centers, but again, it has to be a concentrated uh, center of excellence uh, for those. Gotcha. Tests. Okay, I wanted to make that clear because it's not something you go into your community hospital and and get that test. Um, it's really a tertiary facility like UConn. Um, but uh, how do you, obviously you want to get a piece of tissue, right? That's how you know what you're dealing with the best. How do you go about that? Are, you know, is it, um, are, are we still doing needle biopsies and, and things like that? The, the general um you know, like uh, centuries ago, there, there was a doctrine that was developed. There was a Monroe Kelly doctrine. They said, listen, um, the, the cranial vault is a closed cavity. There's a specific pressure in there. There's uh, three things that make up the pressure. There's the brain, there's blood vessels, and there's spinal fluid. And what you have with brain tumors is that uh, brain tumors add another compartment that increases the pressure within the brain. And so if you have a patient with a brain tumor, um, one of the things that we often have to address, uh, either emergently or in a semi-emergent fashion, uh, for many patients is the mass effect or the pressure that the tumor is putting on the brain. And we also want to get a diagnosis so we know what to treat. So um, 
though there are some tumors, depending on what the, where they're located, um, what critical structures they're located at, that all we can do is get a biopsy, a stereotactic uh, biopsy. Uh, the general goal um, for treating these tumors is a multidisciplinary uh, approach. Uh, the first uh, is to get a diagnosis, like you pointed out, Tony, and uh, um, that can be done with a needle biopsy, but more often with um, with a resection of the tumor to try to take out as much tumor as possible so that we create room necessary for the brain to re-expand and patients not to have deterioration from the, from the mass effect. And, uh, and once we get that diagnosis, uh, this is where we continue to evolve on a daily basis. Uh, uh, commonly, it's initially sent to pathology and... Uh, our pathologists help us identify sort of what general category these tumors fall in. And uh, what we have found over the years is uh, using uh, advanced uh, techniques such as our genomics initiative. Uh, we have a very robust uh, world-class genomics initiative in, in collaboration with Jackson Labs. Uh, we're able to see that even though like macroscopically or just looking at the, the tumors under the microscope, uh, or microscopically, you, you, you'll see that the tumors may look alike, but they may express different genes. So even though they look alike, they may be different tumors, and therefore they need different treatments. And uh, so we use all of that uh, to try to determine um, uh, the optimal way to treat these tumors. But fundamental to treating these tumors is finding out what the tumor is and when there's a lot of mass effect is to create room for the brain to re-expand uh, so patients don't deteriorate from the mass effect from the tumor. Kenton, you're, you're touching on one of my favorite topics, and that's personalized medicine. When you start talking about genomics and the specifics of a tumor, you know, people are always saying, well, why haven't they found a cure for cancer? It's like you expect there's going to be one magic panacea. And it's really not one treatment for everybody anymore is what I'm hearing from you, and especially the genomics of it. So as we talk about treatment, we haven't had a lot of success. I mean, as a neurologist, uh, I know that when we deal with aggressive brain tumor because you have to get every cell, right? I mean, you, you, you really have to uh, have to have a devised way. I want, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the genomics and what happens when you take a piece of the tumor um, are people using immunotherapies, or how does that help you treat somebody with, and I'm talking about glioblastoma or or another malignant form of brain tumor? Got it. Well, Tony, um, what you point out is, um, you know, what we've seen over time is that if we can understand the pathophysiology of the tumor, if we can understand what's gone wrong, what is sort of the driver mutation, uh, or what are the driver pathways that are causing it to behave the way that it's behaving, we can attack that and we, um, and we can get a very, very good outcome for those tumors. So we have made progress and uh, there's examples of tumors um, that are emerging in, who, in which we've identified those, not, not only brain tumors, but other uh, systemic tumors. Right. And we've been able to do very well with those patients. The problem with brain tumors, though, is um, uh, let's say if we focus on um, uh, tumors like uh, uh, glioblastoma, which is um, the brain cancer, the most aggressive uh, uh, brain tumor um, known to, to humankind, 
The problem is we are making progress in terms of understanding the tumor, but we don't completely understand all of the driver mutations. And that's why it's very important, uh, I believe, and uh, I um, have really emphasized this in my, in my leadership role at the University of Connecticut. I've had very supportive uh, um, um, hospital leadership for this is that we have to uh, develop um, a, a protocol where we we have personal we have a very robust personalized genomics initiative for every single one of our patients. So every single tumor, whether it's brain or spine tumor, through neurosurgery uh, at the University of Connecticut is um, is then sent immediately for genomic sequencing to uh, to Jackson Labs and. Uh, Within, uh, within about seven to 10 days, which I think is probably the fastest uh, anywhere in the country, Jackson Labs gives me a report of those tumors with all of the mutations that are present in the tumor, and it also identifies drugs that are available that the FDA has approved that could potentially be effective on these tumors. And so again, this is, um, this is precisely targeting what the potential mutations of those tumors are. And uh, with uh, Dr. Kevin Becker, who's uh, the director of uh, our medical uh, neuro-oncology team, uh, who sort of quarterbacks uh, this entire process, we have uh, we are giving patients standard of care plus, in which we we add something that may be safe um, in in the setting of the other treatments that they're getting. Because again, we've identified what we feel is a potential uh, mutation that could be a targetable mutation, and and I think precision targeted therapy is a holy grail of medicine and surgery, and uh, we have a very robust initiative on that. And uh, what, what I'm also very excited about is, again, as we're understanding these tumors better at the genomic uh, level, is that we're also understanding that uh, with the next generation sequencing, you can identify what mutations are present, but it may be that these mutations are silent mutations. So we have to understand which of these genes are actually doing uh, or activating pathways that may be causing um, adverse events. And uh, so we are one of uh, nine sites in the world in collaboration with Jackson Labs that now offers clinical methylation to precisely identify which pathways are being activated. Now, people have used this in the research realm for a very long time, but it's very, very difficult to do it in the clinical realm. And But, um, again, we, uh, as of a couple of months ago, we became one of nine sites in the world and one of four, only four sites in the United States uh, that currently offers uh, uh, this uh, clinical methylation uh, to better define the pathways that are being activated. So, again, the holy grail of, um, of treating these tumors is going to be to identify um, the driver, um, driver issues within the tumor that are making them uncontrollable. And... Uh, Genomics, uh, methylation classifier—these are the techniques, advanced techniques uh, that we uh, that we offer that uh, I think are going to help uh, tremendously in doing that. And again, if we find the right targets, um, I remain very optimistic that, like we have done with other tumors, that we will improve uh, the natural history uh, of these tumors. And uh, anecdotally, I can say using this targeted genomics therapy is already working. Uh, for for some patients, um, in terms of treatment, you, know, you said so. We identify the genomics and we decide what medications work best, what treatments work best. There's recently an article where they've jacked up the price of lomustine, right? BCNU and CCNU. I mean, 
I remember in the 1980s when I was a resident, we were using intra-arterial CCNU with Harry Greenberg. Um, we've tried yeah. a variety of wafer treatments. What, uh, what are some of the treatments you use now? In other words, how do you administer these drugs and um, how does that work? Well, you know, you would um, you would hit upon um, um, a treatment therapy early, which is immunotherapy, which is yes. um, uh, uh, which is given as uh, either an IV infusion or uh, an oral form. Um, you know, a lot of the intra-arterial therapies um, are um, uh, have had mixed results. So, I mean, that, that isn't uh, there isn't as much being done in that. But again, it was you know, horrible. Really... It was horrible. I mean, it. it I yeah. mean, it, it, we we are going to be very honest with you, Kevin. We 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 did it a lot, and yeah. and we didn't. And, and I think that's what prompted Harry Greenberg, who is a, a well-known neuro-oncologist, to just retire uh, out of frustration. Um, but yeah. it was a great delivery system. It it, it made sense. Um, so, uh, yeah. So how yeah. how do you deliver it? So it's it's IV. Well, you know, there's different forms. I mean, there's there's yeah. oral uh, again for all of these different therapies. There's uh, oral forms. There's uh, intravenous forms. Um, there's no uh, in terms of brain tumors. There's um, there've been various attempts of develop, develop uh, of uh, delivering therapies uh, intraarterially. But uh, but again, you know, I, I would uh, tell me I would almost take a step back. And and what I wonder is. Um, you know, you have uh, what we call glioblastoma multiformans. You, you have uh, you have this tumor, and again, the tumor one tumor looks like the next tumor looks like the next tumor when we look at it using traditional means. However, if you look at it using advanced techniques such as um, uh, next generation sequencing and the methylation classifier, which, who, which again uh, is um, I mean, Jackson Labs, our collaboration has been fantastic with them, and they're that really helped us along in this realm, you realize that the one tumor that's next to another that looks the same is actually not really the same when you look at it in more detail. And, and so I almost wonder, maybe, maybe we're at the stage where we can now better identify these tumors and maybe identify a subgroup that, you know, could be best treated with this intravenous therapy this other subgroup that maybe uh, Dr. Greenberg was right needed to be treated with intra-arterial therapy. We can better identify the drugs uh, that might be more effective against these tumors. And so we are in an unheralded, unheralded sort of position in that we can better identify these tumors. And if we can identify the, the tumor, if we can understand the tumor, then we can overcome that tumor. Are we now in a position to take this sort of to, to the next level? And uh, so I'm very, I know that the status quo in the treatment has improved, but clearly it's to where we need to be. Of these tumors. And once we do, we'll be able to target the specific pathology and. Uh, these more effectively, and that's a fight that uh, we have class in college at every level, and big because it's a big fight, and uh, and we're all in this together to make sure that we can uh, we can beat back this deadly disease. 
Uh, Kenton, I'm going to ask you the question everybody has. When? Are we, seeing the, are we going to see these changes in our lifetime? I mean, uh, we've got a minute left. And, and, and I, I really want you to, I really want to know from you not only when, but how. I mean, you have a team. It, and I want people to understand. It takes a team of people to put this together. You've talked a little bit about Jackson Labs and what's available at UConn. So uh, in the clo- I wish we had more time. In the closing minute, give us an idea of what we should expect to see coming about in the treatment of brain tumors, and especially with respect to the multidisciplinary approach. So, you know, working in silos uh, was uh, a con- um, uh, was uh, was very very common in surgery, but that has been completely redefined. Together, symbiotically, new treatment. When are we to be actually now? Which we're making good progress. I mean, as you know, we were part of. We have a very close collaboration with the Preston Tisch Brain Tumor Center, and we're part of the, the post virus, currently in the management of these, uh, these tumors. So I'm not going to say that. We're starting to lose you in the background there. All right. Um, we seem to have lost Dr. Bolsara. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to uh, briefly close the program. Um, Tom, you'll take it. We're back, and uh, I want to thank Dr. Ketan Bolsara. I'm sorry uh, that uh, he had a bad connection toward the end. Um, but if you have a brain tumor or know someone who wants thinks they have a brain tumor, get in touch with Dr. Bulsara. He has a great team at UConn and a lot of hopeful uh, information from him today. Many thanks to our studio producer, Tom Conley-Wilson's been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. And uh, until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. At Ratchford Eye Center, we care about you and your vision first. Our highly trained doctors and staff use state-of-the-art laser-assisted cataract surgery to bring back a clear vision for your future. This is Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford, and I want to personally invite you to visit us to see what the Ratchford Eye Center can do for you and your eye care needs. Please call 860-829-8939 or visit us on the web at RatchfordEyeCenter.com. We guarantee you'll see the difference. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.